Hi everyone, it's Andrew. I'm very excited about this episode. I'm sure you've heard about the Orbita trial. The press has gone wild over it. It was a sham controlled trial of stents for stable single vessel coronary artery disease. There's been a lot of arguments about it on Twitter and in other news media outlets. As a resident, you kind of wonder who you should believe and what side you should take. So I decided to have a debate about it. Two of my favorite CCU attendings agreed to sit down and debate the trial. First, we'll have Dr. David Brown. He is a strong proponent of the Orbita trial and a co-author of the accompanying editorial. Second, we'll have Dr. Richard Bach. He's one of our interventionalists, and some call him a walking encyclopedia of the cardiology trials, and he has a few reservations about it. I hope you enjoyed the episode. This is AP Cardiology, and this is your host, Andrew Perry. Actually, let me have you first say your name and your title. Uh, David Brown, Professor of Medicine, Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Uh, I'm Richard Buck. I'm uh, professor of Medicine also at Washington University here, and I direct the CCU and our Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Center, and I'm an interventional cardiologist in the cath lab here. Okay. So thank you both for being with me. Let's start with uh, Dr. Brown, and just kind of give us an overlay of the land of the orbital trial that was recently published. What, were, what was the main question that this study set out to answer? Sure. The Orbita study was published in Lancet a week ago today, simultaneous with its presentation at the TCT meeting. And it was the first randomized and sham-controlled study of any form of PCI and medical therapy versus medical therapy alone in patients with stable coronary disease. To give you a little bit of background, in 1992, there was a study published in the New England Journal called the ACME trial that randomized patients to balloon angioplasty or medical therapy and showed that uh, patients that got balloon angioplasty could um, exercise 96 seconds more on a treadmill test than patients who are treated with medical therapy. Since that time, there have been a number of randomized trials as medical therapy has improved and as stenting replaced balloon angioplasty and drug-looting stenting replaced bare metal stenting. And we've pretty much gotten to the conclusion that in stable coronary disease, percutaneous coronary intervention does not reduce mortality and prevent myocardial infarction. But all of the studies suggested that it improved angina. Courage showed an early improvement in angina among the patients who were randomized to PCI and medical therapy versus medical therapy alone. BARRY2D, which was a COURAGE similar study but limited to diabetics, um, also found an early improvement in angina that went away by year three. So the question that the Orbita investigators wanted to ask was, is this early improvement in angina that is lost over time due to the placebo effect, or is it due to some physiologic benefit imparted by improving the lumen of the epicardial coronary? Hmm. 
important to get into the results gotcha. now. Yeah. So, what are the results? so basically they randomized 200 patients um, without getting into a lot of the details, which we can get into later. 200 patients were randomized. Approximately half um, were uh, treated with PCI and medical therapy, and the other half were treated with a sham control plus medical therapy. Now, of note, when these patients were were identified to be approached and enrolled in the study, they had angina and they had a they had had a calf because this was done in England and in England we they don't do ad hoc PCI very much. So these patients had had angina, they had a calf, and they had a lesion in a single vessel that was at least seventy percent diameter stenosis. Okay. Then they were approached to enroll, if they consented and enrolled, they spent the next six weeks getting their anti-anginal medicine up titrated um, as much as tolerable and as much as achievable in a six-week window. Uh, at the end of that point, patients in both groups were on 2.9 anti-anginals each, so almost three anti-anginal drugs each at the time of randomization, which is where they were randomized to sham procedure versus PCI. They underwent the sham procedure or the PCI, and they were followed for another six weeks, at which time the study ended. And the study, the primary study endpoint was similar to ACME, was the difference in increment of time on the treadmill. And that endpoint was not significant. And there were a number, I think seven secondary endpoints that had to do with the Seattle Angina Questionnaire, so angina severity, angina stability, quality of life, all of those were not statistically significant between groups. In fact, there was only one secondary endpoint that was significantly different among groups, and that was the wall, ischemic wall motion score on the dobutamine stress echo. It was uh, significant. It increased no, I guess it decreased significantly more with PCI than it did with medical therapy and sham procedure. In fact, it went up a tiny fraction in the patients who got sham procedure and went down a significant amount in the patients that got PCI. Okay. So that was it. Six weeks, the study's over, and the results are, as I said, a negative trial for the primary endpoint and six of the seven secondary endpoints. So first for this run-in period of six weeks to have their anti-anginal medicines up-titrated, do you both think that that's an adequate time to have your medications optimized for stable angina, Dr. Bob? So I think the, the methods they used to achieve that goal were fairly um, extreme, if I could put it that way. They, patients were contacted three or four times a week to have their medications adjusted. Their medications were adjusted aggressively. Um, that aspect of the study, I do believe, you know, the patients were well treated. If if one uh, would, uh, you know, look at the number of medications and uh, their the improvement, so to speak, in symptoms that happened during that six week period, but um, it's almost an unrealistic construct in that uh, the patients had to be contacted so frequently and medications rapidly adjusted. It's 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 an important aspect of the trial that. They were well treated at the randomization point, um, but it did take a Herculean effort to get them onto the aggressive medical therapy that they achieved during that six-week period. 
do they do you know if they comment in the trial about having contacted them so many times, do they comment about the rate of adjustment of those medications? Like maybe they're contacting them a lot, but maybe their medications aren't necessarily changing. Maybe how fast those medications are being titrated over that time period? Do we know? I didn't see that. I don't in know those the supplement details. or the yeah. the main paper. I mean, it's something you would never do in practice, but I don't know that, you know, the translation of this into somebody's outpatient practice, you couldn't do the same thing over 12 weeks. Or, you know, these patients we know are stable. They're not going to die. Um, I think that, you know, the investigators wanted to cram everything as close together just because the longer the trial drags on, the more patients move out of town, you're lost to follow-up, get tired of being in the study. And given the sample size, I think they really felt like they couldn't afford to lose anybody. So everything was kind of compressed. And they did make the point that they didn't adjust the medications in the last two weeks so that the patients had achieved this, so to speak, steady state of of, um, good uh, medical therapy. Two weeks prior to their PCI. Correct. Prior to randomization. <clears throat> then, next question would be, do you feel like the follow-up is appropriate? Maybe, Dr. Bach, do you think that those are appropriate outcome measures to be following for this, like the um, for distance on their exercise stress test? I think they're very credible endpoints, meaning um, time on the treadmill is at least an objective measure of exercise capacity. Um, uh, the the uh, formally measured uh, health outcomes uh, metrics. The uh, Seattle Angina questionnaire was used to assess angina frequency, angina stability. Uh, they did physical functioning uh, metrics. And so those, I think, are very credible measures. Um, but there's a, a little more to the sensitivity, perhaps, or granularity of those measures that one could question how they translate into you know, clinical practice. But I, 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 one has to design a study that has objective measures of outcome. And I think they were reasonable measures. I don't, I don't think the design of the endpoints is something to criticize in the trial. I think it's actually a very credible um, series of endpoints to examine. Okay. And then how about measuring it at six weeks afterwards? Do you think that that was enough, you know, too soon, too long, etc.? Well, I think we'll get into the details maybe over the next few minutes, but um, if one translates the level of functioning and the angina frequency that were measured by uh, at the time of randomization in this population you find that this is a this is a population with what one might say mild to minimal symptoms at the time of randomization based on their Seattle angina um, frequency score uh, and as a result uh, if one has an infrequent endpoint like angina um, occurring once uh, perhaps every few weeks and the endpoint is at six weeks I think it's very hard to propose that one could uh, objectively determine differences in the in the treatment ends of the two patient populations. So, although I think they're very good endpoints uh, in a population that has mild to minimal symptoms, it's hard to use that endpoint at six weeks to say there's been a significant difference. And it may game the study to some degree to minimize the treatment treatment differences um, of the randomized arms. So I'm concerned that. It's a short endpoint. I think it's a practically important endpoint for them. They did not want to withhold treatments the patients might need for a longer period of time, so they actually purposely, you know, used this six-week endpoint um, to be careful about 
the safety of the study, but uh, but the the endpoints are what they are. Okay. The other the other aspect that limited them to six weeks is their IRB didn't want the sham patients to be on dual antiplatelet therapy for any longer than six weeks as part of the blinding process. And in fact, a couple of those patients um, developed some kind of erosive gastritis and some you know minor GI bleeding or up. Or I'm not sure if it was hemorrhage exactly. So part of it was the their IRB um, feeling that uh, you know having people on clopidogrel or whatever the other second antiplatelet agent would be for an extended period of time would not the benefit of of maintaining the blinding wouldn't uh, counterbalance the risk. But if you, you know, I mean, there's a couple of different ways to look at the six-week time point. I mean, I agree with you. When, if you're not having much angina, then six weeks isn't very long. But that shouldn't influence the treadmill time, which is the primary endpoint. That's a physiologic assessment of your ability to exercise at six weeks. So you could make the argument that the short endpoint favored PCI because the hemodynamic benefit of PCI should be instant, almost instantaneous. Um, whereas the the effects of not so much the anti-anginal medications, but the disease-modifying modifications, the ACE inhibitors, the statins, um, that takes months to years to see an, see an improvement. At least that's how we interpreted the results of Courage and the other studies where the angina benefit was lost um, in the PCI arm early, but then both groups continue to have less angina over time. So, you know, I look at it as it that, and I put this in the editorial, I think it somewhat favored the uh, PCI arm. On the other hand, the counter one of the counter arguments to that is that, but maybe the if the placebo effect that we're hypothesizing is operative here, maybe that doesn't last forever. So maybe if the placebo effect went away at, say, week 12, and you, ha- you assessed endpoints at week 12, maybe the curves would have separated at that point. It's hard to know. It's just speculation. Okay. David, I'm glad to hear you're arguing my side of the counterpoints there. I like that. But, there is um, only one side. <laughs> <laughs> the right side. Well, there, um, I, I, would, I would make this observation, though, and I think, you know, it's interesting that your perspective is that it was favoring the PCI arm because I think it was it stacked the deck to some degree against the PCI arm, and I think more by the patient characteristics. Um, and there are a couple that I think that are hard to appreciate just with a superficial read of the paper uh, and by some of the spin that's come out afterwards because um, it is a relatively small number of patients studied. I think this is a very challenging study to do with sham control. So um, I think as a pilot experience, it's a, it's, it's a landmark study, but by the same token, it's hard to make conclusions from a small N. Uh, the population, as you know, um, was a fairly um, healthy and fit population. The patients are able to exercise at the randomization point for almost nine minutes on the treadmill. That was um, the modified Bruce, though. It was a it was a modification, it was a modified Bruce, which is with, the equivalent of the first phase of the regular Bruce. N- no, that's not true. Actually, the modification that they used ramps up at a slower interval. Yes. every fifteen it's seconds. Called, it ramps yeah, it's up. a smooth, smooth. Mod- yes, but it's not modified in a sense of just a flat treadmill 
walking at uh, no, but no, but the, at a low pace. No, but the the speed and the angle are from the modified Bruce protocol. The change, rather than happening every three minutes, happens every fifteen seconds. Right. But the endpoints at the end of each phase are modified Bruce endpoints, not Bruce endpoints. Uh, it's still a fairly sort of um, vigorous population if you can think they can still run nine minutes on that track. Well, it's not running on the modified Bruce. It's, it's, it's very leisurely walking. Well, it's, uh, and, and both groups are comparable at the, at the randomization point. Correct. But it is nine minutes on a treadmill. Correct. Let, let's put it that way. I um, think most treadmill tests just... Broadly speaking, go for like ten minutes. I think is like your maximum, right? Well, no. After no ten, maximum. After no. ten minutes, it's thought that whatever your result is, it's not doesn't. You have such a good prognosis if you can go ten minutes that the result becomes less and less important, whether it's an ischemic result or not. After ten minutes, okay. But ten minutes on a Bruce is a lot of exercise. Eight minutes on a modified Bruce is not that much exercise, and that's traditionally that's what was used in acne. The modified Bruce was what was used in Greg Stone's sham-controlled study of PTMR. The modified Bruce is what's used, what the FDA accepts as um, evidence when you're trying to get a new antianginal drug approved through them. They accept, in fact, their, pref their preferred uh, metric as an endpoint is change in time over the... Uh, on the modified Bruce exercise protocol with and without new drug. Now, interestingly, you know, a lot of people are saying the study was undersized. Um, but well, hold on, let's let's finish let's finish that thought because I think you weren't quite finished with the thought about the. Well, I was heading in that direction, and okay. and now that you bring up undersized again, you know, the this population that can exercise, albeit uh, not the identical Bruce protocol to nine minutes at randomization. Um, and has relatively mild symptoms. We're now asking for an endpoint, fairly arbitrary, although um, recognize that uh, the ACME endpoint was 90 seconds and other drugs have been studied that increase you know, exercise time on a treadmill to get them approved by the FDA as anti-angional anti agents. Um, I think this is a credible endpoint. However, um, this is a population that can exercise at baseline fairly well. And so we're asking for an increment on top of that after this six, week, six weeks of adjustment of medical therapy. That's challenging. Let's also look at the population with respect to, you know, the patients that were enrolled. And if you look at the, at the angiograms, they had still frames of the angiograms in the supplement. Many of them are, are very tight stenoses, no argument there. But many of them are what we might call intermediate stenoses, more in the 70% range. They did, as part of the rigor of the study, which I commend them on, measure physiology in every case. And so patients had um, uh, instantaneous wave-free ratios, IFRs measured, and fractional flow reserve measured. 30% um, of the population actually had what would be considered a non-significant FFR or IFR, 32%. Uh, non-significant IFRs. So if we take, you know, 95 patients, which is the sham arm, four of them had complications that needed stents at the time of the randomization. And so they end up with stents anyway, even though it's an intention to treat analysis. Mm -hmm. And then 30% of that, we have another 20-odd patients that, uh, in fact, have lesions that would be 
deferred intervention in most laboratories with negative physiology assessments, we're down to a population of 60 or so patients compared to 60 patients in the treated PCI arm. Uh, it's just hard for me to, to suggest that we can depend on an endpoint. We don't reach this arbitrary threshold of 30 seconds, but there is a uh, statistically significant improvement by PCI of exercise time that's close to 30 seconds. It's the fact that, you know, compared to the sham arm that had an 11-second improvement in exercise time, that the difference doesn't reach the relatively arbitrary threshold of statistical significance. I want to be very careful here. I'm concerned that this may be a type 2 error, or prone to it at least, that we're making conclusion that PCI is ineffective when, in fact, it shows some efficacy here. It has improvement in the, in the ischemia-induced wall motion abnormality, um, and yet we're saying it's an ineffective treatment for this population. It's kind of like asking for, you know, a, a medication to improve IQ and studying it in, you know, a population of Nobel laureates. I think that that may be very hard to show a difference here in a small N that uh, even amongst the population studied, not all of them have physiologically significant lesions. Okay. Dr. Brown, what are your thoughts? <clears throat> um, well, the ACME study was the same size, and PCI people, and this is not stented people, this is people that had balloon angioplasty with the residual stenosis site read as 30%, so the residual stenosis in reality was probably 50% after that balloon angioplasty. They increased their exercise time 96 seconds. So the people at, at uh, Imperial College that did the study are very lucky that their IRB didn't say, well, you need to use the historic data of improvement in exercise time demonstrated by ACME to power this study, rather than this 30-second improvement, which is generally what is required for drug studies. So had they insisted on the endpoint difference being what it was in ACME, the two arms would have needed 11 patients each to receive to achieve with a power of 80% and an alpha of 0.05 to demonstrate a significant difference. So to say that a study of 200 is undersized, you know, you can make the argument that it's undersized. You know, if you made it 500, you know, are you trying to find a difference in exercise time of five seconds? Is that, do people think that's clinically significant to justify the risk of complications and the cost to be able to go another five seconds on the treadmill? I mean, all enrolling more patients does is allow you to, to find statistical significance at lower and lower levels of difference between the two groups. So that's one point. The FFR point, you know, our lab is not the typical lab you know, most academic labs that use FFR are not typical. The use of FFR in the United States is 20% of interventional cases. So, you know, we know that what FAME2 showed, and you can debate what it showed, but after the use of physiologic assessment in cath labs in the United States is the exception, not the rule. Um, you know, these patients had you know, significant stenoses, based on whatever your definition of that is. 
They had angina. They had as a group ischemic dobutamine stress echoes. So if you look at the 2017 appropriateness criteria for single-vessel non-LAD disease in patients with a low-risk stress test, there's no mention of FFR, it has a green color to treatment with PCI. So these patients are exactly what people in the United States, in many hospitals, treat without an FFR. Um, and so I, don't, I think that requiring every FFR to be abnormal, while it's a purist viewpoint, it's not reflective of how practice works in the United States. And, you know, those, and the people that aren't practicing with FFR are presumably the ones that you would be most interested in convincing that Orbita is a legitimate trial. I wouldn't call it a pilot study um, because... In my mind, there's no reason to repeat this study in this patient population. You can argue whether it should be repeated in other stable coronary disease populations, the CTO population, the multivessel disease population. Um, and, you know, and it's also just a hypothesis that a lot of people have that there's no evidence to support it, that a intervention that doesn't relieve mild symptoms is much more likely to relieve severe symptoms. Um, you know, that's a hypothesis. It should be tested. Um, but to me, it's like saying, I have, a, I have an antibiotic that didn't work for bronchitis, but I would like to try it in the MICU patients with multi-lobar pneumonia. I mean, why would it work if, if it's a physiologic improvement based on flow? Why wouldn't it work in the mild patients? And what makes us think that it would work, what data makes us think that an ineffective intervention in mildly symptomatic patients would be more effective in more symptomatic patients? Well, if I can address that, because David, I think that's a very interesting point. And, and first of all, I would agree with you that, you know, ad hoc interventions based on angiographic stenosis severity, particularly at the lower end of what we consider angiographically severe stenosis by eyeball you know, assessment is part of the flaw here that um, the physiologic assessment improves on our lesion selection for patients to benefit from intervention. Um, but I would take issue with your argument that if it's ineffective in a mild population, um, why would we, you know, even posit that it's effective in a more severe population? Courage, which has come up here already, you know, was an important study. Um, many have considered it negative for intervention, but the quality of life sub-study, which was a very careful assessment of objective measures of symptom severity and physical limitation, did show benefit. Uh, many have argued it's, um, it's a, only a mild benefit or modest benefit and limited to the first three years. Um, actually, you know, one of the important um, comments that's made in that analysis is that the more severe the patient's symptoms were, the more they benefited, in fact, from PCI as a revascularization strategy. And I, just from personal experience, believe that's very true. When we deal with patients who are very symptomatic, their response to revascularization is even greater. And this is why I say, you know, this colloquial term, stack the deck against PCI. When we study a, an intervention in a mild population, it may be harder to achieve the threshold of statistical significance, but this trial actually does show benefit with respect to exercise time on the treadmill and 
an objective measure of ischemia in the wall motion analysis. So even in a mild population, there were differences that were achieved by revascularization with PCI. So I think that we can say um, there is an effect of how of the population being studied and how symptomatic they are on whether or not they will achieve benefit from the intervention being studied, in this case, you know, PCI with drug-eluting stents. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, if you have somebody that has an FFR of 0.6, if you have two patients with an FFR of 0.6, and one has mild symptoms and one has severe symptoms, and you stent them and their FFR goes to 0.97, you know, it's not, they're not going to get better because their symptoms were different. They're going to get better because the physiology is different, isn't it? Am I thinking about that correctly? or I don't disagree with that, but where are you headed with that? No, I'm just saying that, you know, mild symptoms, you know, severe symptoms, less severe symptoms. I mean, the, the, the breakdown of the Canadian cardiovascular class in this study was the same as FAME2 and was the same as COURAGE, you know, give or give or take a few percent here and there. Um, you know, FAME2 just came out with their three-year follow-up that the intervention was great for angina. So, I mean, if those patients that had the same distribution of angina that Orbita does could get better from PCI, then, you know, they have enough angina to get better from PCI. And I don't know that, you know, worse angina um, would have made that that much of a difference. Now, it's a different thing if you if you want to say, I mean, in my mind, it's a different thing if you want to say, I'm not talking just about angina severity. I'm talking about the extent of the coronary disease. You know, you know, this is a single vessel by design, single vessel patient population. You know, what if you had people with three vessel disease and angina? You know, a lot of people are saying. You know, those, this, these results don't apply to that patient cohort. And again, that's a hypothesis that needs to be proven. At this point, I think the onus of proving the benefit, given what we know from the study, is on the, is on the field to prove that PCI is beneficial when it's sham controlled in any population now. Is there a correlation between symptoms symptom severity and angiographic stenosis? Do we uh, know that? Or is there good data for that? Or is there even bad data for it? I don't know of any data, but I... I don't know of good data. I think most such studies are <clears throat> observational and <clears throat> confounded, and it's, you know, I, I think in general, and I don't know if you would disagree, uh, the more extensive the disease, um, the symptom burden in general, appears to be greater, as does the worst, as does the prognosis, the impairment of long-term prognosis. So uh, the burden of atherosclerosis has traditionally, and in many studies, um, you know, been a predictor of bad outcome. Um, can we really correlate the extent of disease to some precise level of, of expected symptoms? No. I, I think that highlights a flaw of the idea that we can rely on symptoms, unfortunately, because patients with very extensive disease sometimes have mild symptoms, and contrarily, some patients with single-vessel disease have very severe symptoms. And so it's a very complex interaction between symptoms 
um, severity of disease and ischemia on objective testing. And it's not straightforward. And each of those, you know, I would, I would certainly agree with your premise that some of these things need to be proven in randomized trials. Some of these trials are very challenging. The idea that we could have an adequately powered trial in a large population of patients with, for instance, single vessel disease but severe symptoms or multi-vessel disease and mild symptoms, it's, it's impractical. I don't think it's actually going to happen. I would, it would be wonderful if it did, but I don't think we have the ability to do those studies adequately. Um, and any one of them may be confounded by multiple factors. So um, uh, it's, it's asking questions that are very hard to answer. Um, they're they're not, nevertheless not important questions. But this relationship between symptoms, ischemia, and burden of disease is an important one that's, that's, um, that there are many overlapping, you know, parts of the Venn diagram. And, and so it's difficult to have... This is one of the challenges of, I think, cardiology in general and interventional cardiology, that we are dealing with patients who have complex situations, comorbidities, um, as well as differences in disease severity and symptom severity. And we are putting that, integrating that into some calculus of, will this patient benefit from medical therapy and or revascularization, which is part of the you know, some of the most important decisions we make day in and day out for managing patients. And, and I do think, as opposed to saying PCI is ineffective in this circumstance that was studied in Orbita, I want us to take a step back and say, well, this information may add to our experience, but how definitive is it is a question that I would still ask based on the number studied and the endpoints, you know, that were examined. Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, unfortunately, this got cut out for because of the word limitation from uh, our editorial. But one of the things that we had put in the last paragraph under the implications of the study was that this study needs to be discussed with patients before they're referred for PCI for stable angina, presumably after they've been treated with appropriate maximal medical therapy, that there needs to be transparency and honesty that this data is out there, rather than the sort of paternalistic view that I think many take where, you know, I'm not even going to discuss this with a patient because it's such a flawed, irrelevant study. Yet 40% of the patients that undergo PCI for stable coronary disease in the United States have single vessel disease. So at some level, this study is generalizable to a big chunk of the population in the United States that are undergoing PCI for stable coronary disease. And, you know, I, you know, we had put also recommended changing the guidelines. What I, what we meant was changing the, the appropriate, that appropriateness criteria map. But, you know, I don't think that, you know, PCI shouldn't be offered uh, in people with refractory symptoms, but I think it needs to be offered with the caveat that in this recent study, patients that were treated as aggressively as you were, Mrs. Jones, that underwent PCI didn't get any more improvement than people that underwent a sham procedure. That being said, if you understand the risks and you want to have the procedure, I'm fine with that as your doctor. I, I, you know, I can't disagree with that because I think that what's missed to some degree by both 
um, interpretations of this study, if I could put it that way, or or uh, the preconceived biases of, of any um, person reading this study is that there's a shared decision-making process here and that when we decide for the patient that they don't need a stent because they have uh, you know, single-vessel disease and stents are ineffective based on Orbita, we're essentially doing the same paternalistic thinking of uh, you need a stent because you have a lesion. And, and both uh, extremes of that, of that approach to the patient are probably unfair. Uh, the patient should be allowed to participate in this decision with the challenge of informing them on the data sets. And, you know, although Orbita is, is a study, it is one study amongst many studies over the last 30 years of coronary intervention and revascularization. And if we were to focus, for instance, on the ACIP study, which is an older study, also published in the early 90s, like ACME, um, where patients were selected based on the presence of asymptomatic ischemia on exercise testing um, and randomized to revascularization, which included cabbage or PCI versus medical therapy directed at the angina or medical ther therapy directed at addressing the asymptomatic ischemia. It was the revascularization arm that had better outcomes. That study had over 500 patients and it was considered a pilot study and has an informed practice because individuals feel like or, or operators feel like it is a small pilot study that can't be interpreted as definitive for this question. But if we inform our patients of that kind of data as well, and we honestly have to inform our patients of, of the totality of our data and experience to some degree, which is very challenging, um, you know, the patients may come to a different shared decision, if I could call it that, uh, than if we focus solely on the results of Orbita and, and imply that it is generalizable to the population. But one thing I would add is, yeah, there's been a lot of studies. There were a lot of PTMR studies that showed that drilling little laser holes into the ventricle made people's angina go away, too. There are lots of those studies. And then there was a definitive study that was sham-controlled with, I think, 70 patients in each arm, and that procedure died overnight, essentially. Same thing with the radiofrequency renal artery denervation for resistant hypertension. There were lots of studies that showed that that was a beneficial procedure. In fact, that procedure got approved in Europe on the basis of those studies. Um, and then when there was a the Simplicity Hypertension 3 study that was sham controlled, showed, oops, no benefit. So that study, that device, that procedure never got approved in the United States. So I think that just because there's 10 studies that show one thing and one study that shows another thing doesn't necessarily mean that all 10 of those studies or all 11 of those studies um, are weighted equally. David, let me ask you, is this orbit going to change your practice? Um, I kind of practice like that anyway, but I will discuss Orbita with patients rather than being so paternalistic. Uh, I mean, I routinely send people to the cath lab that have refractory angina on as many medications as I can get them on. Um, and, you know, I'm going to continue to do that practice, I think, but I'm going to tell them about Orbita at the same time I'm asking them if that's the route they want to go. And I, and I think... Um I don't think it's going to change my practice because I think in our laboratory and perhaps 
you know, I, I'm seeing patients that you are sending, for instance, to the laboratory. Uh, we have uh, a fairly careful group of consultants who are generally using medical therapy prior to um, sending patients for invasive strategies of, of um, determining revascularization. Uh, I think there are many individuals who, are, who have a diagnosis, for instance, of severe single vessel disease who have symptoms who are being deferred intervention in the laboratory until medical therapy is attempted. But I want to put this into the context of Orbita particularly because I am concerned um, with the number treated and the and the um, the uncertainty of the reliability of these endpoints uh, that I want to be careful and not be overemphasized to patients in a way that um, patients who may um, with you know careful discussion of their options uh, prefer to have a stent done to uh, either improve symptoms as a goal or to reduce the dependency on medical therapy. And that's still viable even after Orbita, in my opinion, um, as long as the patient participates in a carefully uh, informed decision. Um, and, I, and I think yanking it off the table because of Orbita, to me, is premature based on the level of evidence that the study provides. Yeah, I don't think it's going to go away. I think, like I said, you can offer your patients that. Um, but I think it would be misleading and potentially contributing to the placebo effect if the message to the patient is you're still having angina on three antianginal medications, you know, you're going to go to the cath lab and your angina will be cured. Um, I think that approach is flawed, you know, you know, at many levels, at the level of the data doesn't support that anymore, and of the data that, uh, you know, that you're basically telling the patient what to expect before they have the procedure, which, you know, I think is part of what sets us up for this whole placebo effect. You know, the placebo effect isn't 100% derived from the patient. It's derived from their expectations of the procedure, which they're getting in many cases from their doctor. Um, so... I think that we need to keep that uh, in mind. Well, thank you both for spending your time with me today and talking about it. Great. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you for listening to this episode of AP Cardiology. My name is Andrew Perry, and I'm the editor and producer of this podcast. Much thanks to the band Broke for Free, who song Night Owl on the album Directionless EP, I Have Used for My Theme Music. It is granted under a Creative Commons license under Attribution 3.0. We'll see you next time.